How do you build a highly successful, kind company? I built an eight-figure global sustainable brand by the age of 28, and now I'm building Kind Community into a portfolio that helps create a healthier and more sustainable future. In this podcast, I share the many failures and lessons I've learned in scaling my own purpose-driven brand, working alongside the largest, most recognizable brands in the world, and helping you do the same. So if you're interested in kind leadership and making this sustainable, attainable, and accessible, this is for you. Hi, welcome to the Kind Community Show. Today, I'll be joined by Paul Hargreaves. He'll be joining us in just a second. Paul is the founder and CEO of Hustle Fair. Hustle Fair supports independent retailers across the UK, source top quality food and drink products, and in doing so, improve their efficiency and lowering their carbon footprints. Cultural Fair was started back in 1999 as a small distribution hub for niche artisan producers and quickly grew into one of the leading fine food distributors and one of the first UK B Corp certified companies. Paul is also the author of an interesting book called Forces for Good, which we'll be talking a bit more about when we bring on. So he'll be with us in just a second. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Afternoon, Ken. Good to be here. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, so firstly, I wonder if you could tell us what made you start Cotswold Fair? Well, at a very basic level, um, I started it when I was doing charity work in, in South East London and uh, ran out of money. So uh, uh, <laughs> at the very start, it was really to put food on the table and to, to pay the, the mortgage. So I was running it alongside the charity work for, for a few years, very, very part-time, really just a hobby business more than a, a proper business. And once we've been going a while, I ran across um, one of our customers, farm shop we were supplying with just, I think, two or three Cotswold brands at the time. And she said, I've got a real problem, Paul, because I'm growing the, the business and I want to buy a lot of interesting artisan British food products, but I'm having to do an individual order for each brand I build and it's taking far too much time. It's wasting time. It's too many deliveries a week and it's a complete mess. So I would like to help you start a proper distribution business selling British products. I've got, I've got a house in Wales, which I'm going to sell, and I'd like to put half that money into into kicking off a proper distribution business. So that planted the seed that actually there was there was something here bigger than the kind of hobby type business I'd, I'd, I'd slowly built up. Now, the unfortunate thing is her marriage broke down and, and she never did sell the house and she never did do it with me. But the, the seed had been planted, I guess, uh, in my mind that actually there was potentially a very good business here because it was, this is, You've got to remember this is late 90s so there'd been a bit of an explosion of british food which hadn't really been on the map at all prior to that so tv chefs were just starting to to be a big thing and people were more interested in buying proper food so farm shops that were a lot of them were turned from sheds into into bigger places by that point and um 
yeah, I guess that's uh, that's where we started, and we've just grown with the specialty food sector in the UK since then. Great. So, can you give us a, a sense of the scope of the size of the, the size of the business now? Well, we supply about seventeen hundred shops um, across the UK and Ireland. I will say Ireland at the moment, although Brexit is is hindering progress there at the moment. <laughs> Maybe go on to that later, but um, yeah, we we've got um, probably an average of seven hundred to eight hundred orders going out a week to to shops. So yeah, great, wonderful. So can you tell us a bit more about the, say some of the biggest challenges you face when when starting this business? As with any any business, the, the challenges at the beginning are really to to be financially sustainable, you need to get to a certain size. So I actually started it with a with another guy, I missed, missed that out of the story at the beginning. So once the idea had been planted, I just happened to meet someone else who'd come back, also doing charity work, actually. He'd come back from Africa looking for something to do, I thought. And he was thinking of starting a home delivery grocery business. It was just around the time Tesco's were starting there. So I said, I'm not sure you're going to be able to compete with Tesco's, Dave. So why don't you, why don't you come and help me do this? And and he agreed to do it, and he was very much aligned with me in terms of using business to not just earn uh, money to pay pay our way and feed our children, but also to use business as a as a force for good and to change the world for better through business. So he was. I wouldn't have done it with him unless he was aligned in that way, which he was. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we struggled really for, for uh, more than two years. But after two years, he'd really had enough and um, was sick of run, doing something that wasn't earning any money. Um, and so he actually left and left me holding the baby. But obviously the business had started it was growing it wasn't profitable but a lot of the kind of structure uh, was in place in in order to be able to grow from there challenge wise apart from running out of money <laughs> frequently we had decided uh, probably a little ambitiously to, to take on a high percentage of people who had issues in their lives so of our first five employees there was one ex-drug addict, one alcoholic, and one guy just came out of prison. So we were trying to give them a chance where other people may not have employed them. Absolutely still believe in that stuff. I think we probably were a little ambitious, having 60% of the workforce with people from that kind of background. But um, obviously we've maintained that ethos since then. And obviously when you're financially in a better place, it's easier to be able to do stuff that makes a positive difference in the world, which is what we're doing now. You, you touched on, um, you know, using business as good. And, and so what do, you, what do you feel your purpose is as, as a business? And, and how do you articulate that in everything you do? Number one, it's about great food with no crap in it. So quality products and as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we're delivering a lot of brands on, on one delivery, it, it, as it happens, I mean, I, I, I was doing this primarily for 
efficiency for the the retailers back in the day but obviously now it's far more efficient efficient in terms of carbon as well so it's a massive carbon reduction delivering loads of stuff to shops in one vehicle and at the same time being a great place to work and really looking after the people that work for us because it, it, it still amazes me how many people haven't worked this out but if people are happy when they're at work, they're going to do a good job. They're going to be more productive and you're going to be more successful. But still, too many companies seem to not quite twig that and don't treat people well. And as a result, probably aren't as good as they could be. So that, that would probably be our purpose. Great food, deliver sustainably and looking after both our people and people in the supply chain. And how, how do you ensure that those those that purpose is articulated and done day in day out you know when things get tough you know how do you make sure that is the, the backbone of your business i think the key is to and this hasn't always been the case kana i'll be totally honest with you we've 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 started off well and in the middle of our journey yeah just the pressures of of, of a rapidly growing business um lost our way i lost my way in terms of purpose probably um and as a result the company did too so it probably took up to kind of year 10 we were floundering in terms of purpose from year halfway through the life of the company till till now we've much much stronger on that particularly and we'll come on to b corp a bit later but particularly since we became a B Corp, that's been really, really helpful in terms of embedding our purpose. So now I feel you could, you could not literally, of course, but you could cut anyone in half at Cotswold Fair and our purpose, our DNA, if you like, would be would be there in the, in the middle of them. And, and, and actually, as part of the B Corp assessment, you, you can be chosen to, to have that cutting in half process happen so they can randomly choose anyone in the company and ask them, about purpose, about what we're doing, DNA, and um, obviously, if, you, if they don't get a good answer, you'll be you'll be marked down. But um, yeah, it's been a real. I mean, I, I, actually, one of the highlights for me of last year was um, we doing a part of being a B Corp. You do an impact report, which is basically how we as a company have made a a positive difference in the world over the last year, and picking up that impact report. And looking through it, I was struck by how much of what we were doing wasn't driven by me, wasn't driven by the management team. It had come from the ground up, if you like, loads and loads of people doing loads of different things. And I think that really is the test of whether purpose is, is truly embedded in a company. It's not just a kind of marketing thing or purpose wash or greenwash or whatever you want to call it. It's actually really there if everyone can explain what you're doing in the company. That's right. And it sounds to me on that, um, that the behaviour there is, is empowered. You've, you've given the, the team, your whole entire team, a chance to contribute towards the purpose. Yeah, I think we, one of the best things we did on this was we set up uh, a number of change groups, we call them, which is basically what, you know, there was, there's, I mean, they're kind of less necessary now because it is so embedded, but we still have them. Um, so we've got a couple of environmental ones, one more looking out to our suppliers and one looking at the office environment, what we do there, a community group and a people group. And those little groups have 
around three people, three to four people are really what's driving the, the change. So they come up with great ideas and to be honest with you, we generally say yes to most of them because because they are good ideas. I think that is far, far stronger than you know imposing from above. I mean the command and control type leadership doesn't work anymore. And I don't know if it ever did properly, but it certainly doesn't work anymore. Much better for for people to be free to take risks and chance things um, and, and make a difference. Not all of it works, but if enough of it works to make a difference, then you, you're winning, aren't you? For sure, for sure. And can you can you touch on, maybe expand a bit more about the sustainable journey across your operations from people and to product? Yeah, well, we could spend the rest of the podcast on this subject alone. So it's probably best if I, the, the, there's kind of five categories that you, you go through as, as part of the, the Beacon assessment. So very, very briefly, governance, that's really what we've just been talking about, DNA. Clearly, we've now written into our Articles of Association, uh, which is the kind of legal bit of the company, that we exist as a company for the benefit of all stakeholders, not just shareholders. We have absolute transparency. All our PNL numbers, turnover numbers are on the wall in the office, which, of course, not many people are seeing at the moment because there's not many people there. But normally they're in full view every day to, to, to everyone when they're there. Uh, Decision-making is generally pretty democratic, um, which I've kind of alluded to already. The next category is workers, which is all about happiness of people there. So... We do decent holidays, we do sabbaticals, people can buy an extra week of holiday off the company if they want to, you know, have an extended holiday, private health cover. One big thing for me is is making sure the pay gap between the most, the highest pay and the lowest paid is as, as small as possible. Um, yes, there needs to be some based on experience, etc. but companies where a few people are getting paid ridiculous amounts of money compared to the, the normal people in the company. I just I don't get that. I mean, supermarkets pay their CEOs 360 times what the shop floor workers get paid. So in a day, they're earning as much as those people earn in a year. Just wrong, in my view. And it, it doesn't create a good culture. Anyway, rant over on that. I'll better move on. Um, obviously, living wage foundation, living wage, which is the real living wage not the not the government one then you've got community which is a lot of that's to do with our suppliers we buy as locally as possible wherever possible british wherever possible we do stuff in schools in food banks um like with i think there's a couple of people uh, doing practice interviews at a secondary school next week um just to help them get ready for the world of work and then a big one for us is the environmental side. I've talked a bit about the, the consolidation side. We've done loads and loads of stuff in the office, actually, to make, make ourselves more environmentally friendly, reducing waste, all our excess food. Short-dated stuff goes to uh, City Harvest, which goes to a lot of charitable projects in London. Um, yeah, loads and I could go on for a very long time, but that's a flavour of... Of what we do and I think one message I would like to to kind of put across is yes we we do a lot of stuff we've got a great impact report which is is here actually that's about 20 pages of stuff we've done in the last year but 
we could have done that three or four years ago. So I think sometimes you can feel like you've got, oh, we'll never, we'll never do anything. We're quite small. We, everyone can do something today and you can do something else next week, something else next month, and maybe something even bigger next year. But it, we sometimes get into this paralysis of not doing anything because the task feels too big. We started small. We now do a bit more. I'm hoping we can do a load more in the future. The important thing is to do something today or tomorrow. That's it. Well, they, you know, with with some of these great, these huge tasks, you know, climbing Everest starts with one step. So yeah. you can you can apply that to your sustainable journey yeah. uh, straight away. So I love that. Thanks, but thanks for that, Paul. Could you tell us about some? some of the biggest challenges when making these sustainable changes or developments? Well, I mean, the biggest challenge for us right now is we, we are carbon neutral for everything we do as a business. So we've reduced carbon as much as we possibly can. And obviously that process continues every year and we offset all the rest of the carbon, which is now, I think, 47% less than it was a couple of years ago. However, obviously, we are just a distributor. We've got nearly 400 brands in our range, and there are lots of products I would like within our range to be more sustainable than they are. But if we if we cut out all those products tomorrow, we, we wouldn't be here, and, and, you know, 40 people would lose their jobs, which wouldn't be great. So the balance between moving forward in terms of our products, and, yes, we do make decisions. We don't take things on that don't tick certain boxes. At the same time, we've got some historical brands in our range, which we are trying, we're trying to push all our suppliers further down the sustainability road. Some of them aren't moving as fast as I would like them to, but obviously if we cut out quarter of a million pounds of turnover, for example, it's gonna be harder to, to you know, to be sustainable in a financial sense in order to be able to do some of the other stuff we do so it is the next biggest project on our agenda is to not only for us to be as carbon neutral as possible um but also and, and obviously got the whole plastic issue on top of that um but to also to be pushing our suppliers further and faster down the road we have got 19 other B Corps of suppliers now, which is, I think, more than double a year ago. So things are moving, but obviously 19 out of 400 is, is, is a low percentage. So that's probably mm. currently our biggest challenge. Great. And so why was, why was becoming B Corps certified important to you? And what was that journey like? What are you most proud of from that journey? For me, yes, okay, so um, you probably know aware of uh, the frozen food company Cook. Um, Ed, who's the co-founder of that, is a, is a mate of mine. He first told me about B Corp, I think in 2014, maybe 2013. To me, it sounded a bit American, to be honest with you. <laughs> she put me off a bit, the name sounds a bit, doesn't sound very British, Ed. Um, anyway, the more I looked into it, the more I just thought, wow, actually, this is exactly what I believe about what business should be. And I've kind of been trying to do this in a limited way for a few years. Thought I was the only one doing it. Suddenly, you've got this whole community of people who pretty much believe about business what, what I believe. So that, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it really was like coming home for me. 
in terms of my business journey. So, um, yeah, and, and obviously the more we found out about it, the, the better it was. So in terms of what I'm most pleased about being a beacon, it, it is the fact that the the kind of what's well, a combination of the, the kind of structures they put in place through the assessment and also the networking that goes on with some of our people with the some other you know, people who work for other B Corps. And to be honest with you, most of our good ideas are nicked from other people as they always are. So it's, it's that cross pollination and the fact that everyone in the, I think pretty much everyone in the company has been to something B Corp during their. Well, it's been a bit more difficult in the last year, but um, over the last couple of years, most people have been have touched B Corp in some way or had meetings with other people who work for B Corp. So, yeah, the, the fact that um, it's been really helpful in terms of changing our DNA and helping people understand our purpose. And, you know, the premise, the whole premise of B Corp is using your business for good, right? And you, you actually author of a book, Forces for Good, can you can us can you tell us a bit more about you know, what you expect we just take away from it? Yeah, so the, the main motivation for for writing that book was I was um, I loved Beagle when I came into it. Some of the language they were using, and because there are some very bright people in the in the Beagle movement, it wasn't necessarily I didn't think always understandable enough to normal people working for normal companies like us so really i wanted to write a book that put it in in plain english told stories about what companies could do to make the world a better place and it would be relatable to building companies cleaning companies gardening companies normal business everyday businesses not necessarily just people that were making solar panels or running you know sustainable electricity companies but normal companies could make a real difference in the world in fact you could argue normal companies like being a wholesaler for example can almost make more of a difference because they stand out from the the rest more easily so that was the main motivation very briefly it was put into three chunks you know people planet and profit of course and if you do the people and planet bit you'll actually become more profitable. But as I was writing it, I kind of, this dawning came upon me that um, actually if we're going to change the world and make the world a better place, it does involve us changing too. So there is a fourth section, which is I call my fourth bottom line, which is about personal change of the leaders running these businesses, which I know has happened to me Um and it happened, you know, it's happened to, to a number of other people. I don't know. And I think unless that really happens on a deep level, potentially this movement could run out of steam. It's got to involve us changing as people, us becoming more compassionate, us crying about climate change and stuff like that. So I've actually, you might not know this, I can't remember, but um, I've actually just, I'm having another book published in two or three months. And it is called The Fourth Bottom Line. And it is about the characters of what I would consider a good leader. There's 50 different characteristics of good leaders. Uh, that's basically the part that how that work, how that book works. We'll have to get you on a future podcast to, to tell us about that one, Paul. <laughs> I just finalised the cover design today, actually. <laughs> fantastic. Anything you can share with, with us now? 
Well, it, it, it's basically um, it's a book. I mean, I I kind of sit down at the start of each day and do a bit of meditation and um, read something. So it's designed for that time of day, which some people do in the evening, whatever, it doesn't matter. And it really is a short chapter, 50 shortish chapters, um, and each day takes a different characteristic. So let's say compassion, compassionate one day, four quotes, definition of the word, of course, first, uh, four quotes, then some a story or two from me, and then three action points to put into practice that day on that particular characteristic. So there's there's 50 of them altogether. I, I did have a few more, but I cut it down. I thought 50 days was probably enough. Yeah, that's the structure okay. of the book. I look forward to it. So, Paul, what lessons do you hope other business leaders can learn from you, your book, or, or Cotswold Fair? Hey guys, I'm wondering if you could just quickly review this podcast. It really helps us reach a wider audience. And with that, we get to scale our impact. Thanks again. Let's get back to it. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of talking goes on, isn't there? Um, and I've hinted at it before. Maybe less people actually do stuff to make a difference. And it, it, it's, it is really, really easy to do things to make a difference because I think sometimes we, we, can, we try and do too much. So concentrating on doing small things and small things added up can make a huge difference. Um, we, we had a supply conference back in May 2019, back in the day when you could do things like that. It was great, wasn't it? Um, and I know for a fact, that was the main message of that day, actually, it was don't let perfection get in the way of progress. I think sometimes we can think, oh, the world's a mess. I can't possibly do anything. I'm too small. But actually, you can. everyone can do something. It might be a small thing. It might be something bigger. But if we could all take that into each day. I mean, I'm trying to do something sustainable each day at the moment and probably don't succeed every day. For example, yesterday I decided to pay a bit more for a book I wanted and didn't buy it from Amazon. I bought it from a local bookshop. Um, so, yeah, something we can all do something each day. And I think um, the fact that everyone can make a difference, don't, don't leave it for other people. You can do yeah. it. It's a big one. And I think there, Paul, it's it's also leading by example, right? So as a business leader, you making those small changes compound up. Your team are going to see you, you know, trying to be as sustainable as you can, mm. and they will therefore want to try and be more sustainable themselves. And that then has a has a far-reaching uh, net. Yeah. And, and, you know, we are a very simple business. Being a wholesaler ain't complicated. We're buying a load of boxes and we're selling a load of boxes. And what we do is just in the middle of that. So if a wholesaler can can hopefully do our bit to change the world, then any business can, really. So true. What, what companies do you take inspiration from and which leaders do you most admire? Well, I've mentioned Cook already, Ed Perry, uh, I think it's 
a great guy, remarkable company doing remarkable things. In fact, I think their strap line is, is something about remarkable food. Um, so that would be one. Um, Timpsons, James Timpson, I know a bit. Um, they are, I love what they do with people with prisoners. 10% of their people uh, come, are recruited from prison. So their first day out of prison is, is working in one of their, their shops. I think they do an amazing work there. They would probably be the, the two that spring to mind first. Finally, what's next for Cotswold Fair? And what, and what, do, what are you most worried about? And what are you most hopeful for? Well, we've got big plans for this year. They're, they're a bit further away than they were about a week ago. But we're opening our own, uh, basically we're opening becoming one of our own customers because we're opening our own food shop and restaurant food hall and kitchen we're calling it it's called flourish so that's what i'm most excited about but that also brings with it the biggest challenge because we're going to be uh, more than doubling the number of people who work for the company and clearly we've got great culture where we are and we obviously want to replicate that in in the new business um so that will be the biggest challenge is is you know taking what we've got at cotswold fair and duplicating it in another site that's you know it's about 50 miles away um yes we will do be doing cross-pollination people will come backwards and forwards but to take 35 40 people on pretty much overnight which is what we're doing and get the Cotswold Fair culture in will be a challenge but it's one I'm really looking forward to actually. Very exciting Paul and, and are you actively recruiting for any roles now do you want to put, put a message out there to the listeners? Well actually you know what we, we are and we've been besieged with people applying um, so I think for the, the head chef role we had 170 applicants in 48 hours so I don't really want to advertise anymore, actually, because, yeah, we are recruiting at the moment just for the kind of management team, head chef, uh, head butcher, um, front of house manager. Yeah, we just, we, I think we've offered three people so far. So, yeah. Very exciting. But as I said, we've just been delayed a month. So it was meant to be the end of April. It's now, now the end of May. So, And it'll be called Flourish. And where is Flourish. it based? It's on the main road between Bristol and Bath, the A4. So it's about halfway between Bristol and Bath. Okay, wonderful. Looking forward to it. So, Paul, here's the quick fire round. Three quick questions. I need you to answer as quickly as possible. Uh, what's the best business book you've read? I struggled a bit with this. I don't really read business books because they tend to be kind of how-to and I've done this, so copy me and you'll, yeah. So I, I read a lot of books on sustainability and stuff. The best one I've read in the last year, actually, I'm going to give you two, sorry, but Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth is a great book if you don't know much about economics, which, which I didn't. Uh, this isn't a business book, but it's probably taught me more about leadership than any other book, and that's Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. Wow. Okay. What's your favourite sustainable hack? I've kind of mentioned this already, actually. Um, the fact, try and do something sustainable each day, something small. Uh, you know, think about what you're doing every time you, you, you touch something and make it a bit more sustainable. Conscious consumerism sort of thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, one very quick one you can do overnight, change your web browser to Ecosia. Um, yes. And they are carbon positive, so they plant trees for every browse you do on, on the internet. That's a dead easy one. We we pushed it out across everyone's computer in the company overnight. Like, there's a huge, amazing number of trees that we're now responsible for. It doesn't cost anything. No, no, you get it your own forest. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Last but not least, what would be one bit of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? Number one has to be go with your gut. The, 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 I made loads of mistakes, and most of them have been me not going with my gut instinct and letting other people persuade me a better course of action, which actually wasn't. So go with your gut and stick with it. Thank you so much, Paul. Before we go, how do people connect with you, connect with Cotswold Fair, and, and how can the viewers support you? Well, the Cotswold Fair website is cotswoldfair.co.uk. I'm also, when we're allowed to, uh, I speak at conferences and things. I've got my speaker website, paulhargreaves.co.uk. And, of course, um, you can buy the current book, Forces for Good, and uh, look out for the new one, The Fourth Bottom Line. Thank you so thank you thank you so much Paul really appreciate you being on today um, thanks for that I'll, I'll see you very soon been a pleasure if you're inspired by my conversation with Paul please remember to subscribe leave us a review and share it with anyone that you think would love to join our community I'm Jenna Belli and this is the Kind Community Show